0: Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. My name is
1: Sean Ram alongside Dr. Joshua Black. Dr. Black, how are you today? I'm doing good, Sean. It's a, it's a great day outside. and I was able to walk around a bit, which is nice. And we get the podcast. And I am always so appreciative of people who take the time to come on and open up and basically let us into their world a little bit. And everyone has a story. and So I'm so excited to hear about the next story today.
0: Absolutely. On today's podcast, we have with us Erica Buist, and she is a journalist from London, England and writes mostly for The Guardian. February 2021, we'll see the publication of her first book, This Party's Dead, in which she investigates death anxiety by traveling to seven death festivals following the sudden loss of her
1: father-in-law. It's great to have you on, Erica. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm glad we finally get the talk. I've been following your Instagram uh, for a while now, and I think it was our one of our co-hosts, Jade Black, that basically tagged me in one of your posts on what you're doing in your book. So I've been really looking forward to this and, you know, waiting for your book to come out also. So uh, I'm excited to sort of hear about this, uh, this journey of yours and also, you know, what you're doing now. So I guess a good place to start would be, How are you doing right now with the uh, the lockdown? Because you're from London, England. So we're from Canada. So I'm guessing there's a lot of differences in maybe how we're handling this.
2: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) in London, we don't really have um, a lot of space. So the lockdown is quite interesting. I'm spending a lot of time walking in the road to try and keep distance from people. Um, So yes, it's been an extremely strange time. But I guess I, I guess we're all just trying to cope in our own ways. Is it, is it the same over there? Is it super strange?
1: Yeah, it's very strange. It's there's just less traffic. there's more there's so much more fear that you sort of see. but also because of like we're lessening, like we're opening up some stores a little bit more now. And so you see oh, this you are? Oh, yes, yes. So like any kind of like um, road or any kind of like storefronts that are like by the road. Are opening up um so and parks are opening so with that you see a lot of hope and excitement for people and that is great but i can see the a rush of people trying to do things to just get out and then it's going to have like a maybe like a um an opposite effect of you know the social distancing so we'll sort of see how it goes but yeah they're playing around with trying to open everything up now so there's still that fear but you also there's that hope that you know maybe this will work you know like <laughs>
2: <laughs> wow you guys are so optimistic over there because here they're sort of starting to let people go back to work a little bit and all i'm hearing is like there's gonna be a second wave everyone's gonna die but i don't know i guess we're not known for our optimism over here <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think there's, I think it's cautious optimism. I think uh, there's definitely a lot of anxiety around opening up. I'll, I'll just speak for myself. Like I'm anxious because it's it's kind of human nature to. Uh, it seems like what I'm learning. It seems like human nature to forget quickly. Mm-hmm. So if they open up parks, which they're they're planning to open up parks pretty soon, and like Joshua was saying, storefronts that are not in a mall. Um, but I, I'm really cautious and about that because people will naturally want to have like large barbecues or you know, oh somebody's birthday, and then they invite 20, 30 people. And like I could see that. Like it's really it's upon us to adhere to these kind of rules. And I think that can help. Uh, but again, it depends on where you live. Like London's pretty heavily populated, a lot like Toronto, uh, probably yeah. more, probably less space. Um, So if I lived in London, I would definitely be even more anxious. Um, Yeah, and and the
2: rules are, it's all very confusing. You know, they're saying like here that the rules are so unclear, you know, they sort of say, you can see one, you know, you can see one parent at a time, at a distance outside, but apparently it's fine to crowd onto a bus with strangers. Like it's oh, just yeah. the one parent, but countless strangers is fine. It's very confusing. Yeah. So we're all a little bit irritable right now because it's just sort of, they've slightly eased the lockdown and all it's done is just confused people. And, um I don't know I think what you've this this is actually quite an interesting time um, if I kind of if I kind of step back a little bit from the anxiety and the empathy a little bit and then look at it in terms of this being like a massive death reminder for everybody like people are constantly being reminded of mortality they're behaving in these incredibly predictable ways like you know instances of hate crimes have gone up people are much more likely after a death reminder to be racist and to be um, you know to, to double down on whatever kind of beliefs they have, and this seems to be really, um, I don't know, it seems to especially affect bigots. So straight away, as soon as I started seeing reports of hate crimes going up, I was like tweeting out like, okay, guys, this happens when people have a death reminder, just we need to expect it, we need to look after each other, you know, more ways than one." So yeah, it's it's been, um, oh, it's it's pretty exhausting. This is, it's almost like being the darkest timeline, you know, this is just like the strangest possible year we could have had.
1: I didn't know that. That's so interesting. It makes sense. Yeah.
2: It's right. a, it's actually a book I recommend everybody reads. It's called The Worm at the Core, The Role of Death in Life. And it's um, it was three guys, three psychologists who decided to set about proving Ernest Becker's theory that death essentially dictates all of our behavior. And boy, did they prove it. They spent 30 years proving this stuff. So I that's a that's a massive book recommendation from me. And then you can start um, you know, tweeting out um smug things like, I completely expected there to be hate crime.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. You you are comfortable with death since you've been to a lot of death festivals and (laughs) you're amongst the people right now, even though you have anxiety, you're probably doing a little bit better than people who have tried to avoid it their whole life. And so for you, what what happened for you to get to a place like this? Have you always been, like, were your parents very supportive in maybe bringing you to funerals, or was this something that you developed on your own?
2: Oh, no. My parents were completely the opposite, and this all started because um, I had, I think, a lot of anxiety around death. Uh, my parents are um, both medics. Uh, my mother was a nurse. Uh, my stepfather's a, a doctor, and they um, they. Bless them are the classic um, death phobic medics. You know they say things like, you know, death is failure in our industry, which is a which is a bizarre thing. to to think considering that 100% of people die and they tend to go to medics for the thing that's killing them in you know in this kind of western society where we get to die of old age for example um we tend to go to doctors when we're dying so for that for them to be sort of not trained in death and to to get to the point where they think death is a failure I just think So, so that's how I was brought up I was not brought to family funerals no um you know death if the subject came up, it was um, people sort of act like you were being rude, almost like you know, like you like you were asking them about their prostate, you know, <laughs> it just sort of <laughs> bat you away. It just wasn't cool. Yeah, um, yeah. And you know, I just um, and so writing this book. I mean, I mean, bless them. I don't think they'll listen to this. So I can tell you, it took my parents two years to get up the courage to ask me how my book was going um, because when you talk about death, apparently you're ruining Christmas dinner. So sorry, mum. Um, but yeah, I mean, this started because I was so anxious to the point that I now understand it's, it's, it's not normal. Um, I, I wrote my, my dissertation on death when I did a philosophy degree, it was kind of just something that was always there in the back of my mind, but in a, in a very anxious way. And then we found my father-in-law dead and I just went way off the deep end. If I'm honest, I, uh, I essentially became, <laughs> A little bit controlling, you might say. I was suddenly, I suddenly found myself, because my father-in-law died of heart disease, undiagnosed heart disease. And, you know, generally the causes of that alone include food. I, I suddenly thought it would be a really great idea for me to control every tiny little thing that my husband and I ate. Basically, I guess you might call that bargaining, bargaining with the food industry to please not kill us and uh but more than that, because we didn 't find my father in law for eight days, I sort of realized something that in my in my brain seemed completely rational, and I actually thought I was a genius for having noticed this. Did you know that anyone you 're not looking at might be dead? And it just suddenly seemed really obvious to me, and so I thought it was incumbent upon me um to check on everybody, so I kind of found myself sitting at home um stalking everyone i knew online to check they were still alive you know sort of like sending a text looking for that double tick to show that they'd opened the message i didn't care if they replied i was essentially just a head counter you know just checking who was here and if they didn't reply um i thought it was entirely possible they were dead to the point where if they sometimes i, I would see that they got the message and then i would think oh but what if their phone was just open on the messages app um, and they're lying dead next to it. I better text them tomorrow because by then their battery will have run flat. Um, I don't want to be sitting here thinking they're alive like an idiot. You know, all of these. I swear, these thoughts all made perfect sense to me, and um, I now realise that that's not really a way to live. So no, this um, <laughs> this all started very much because I was not cool with death at all. Um, and uh, and y- the thing is, when you're stalking everyone you know online. Okay. I'm going to tell you something really embarrassing. I actually, I actually told, a story, I told this story in a reading once and everyone was laughing. And I took a, a moment to say, this is a true story. So I just want you to know that you're laughing at me right now. But fine, whatever. Um, my husband texted me, um, telling me that, the, that some celebrity he liked was going to be on a TV show. And my genuine first response was, oh, that's really good because he would have had to do a medical. So even though he's overweight, he's probably not about to drop dead. And my husband was like, oh, and that's a really weird response. I was like, whatever, I'm just thinking ahead. I'm a genius. It was just so ridiculous that I was suddenly concerned with the possible heart health of a celebrity I didn't even know or like. So yes, it it definitely went um, a a little bit, uh, a lot too far, I would say. Um, But uh, also what I realized after a while was happening, Um, while I was stalking everyone online, is that I wasn't going outside. And so I found I was actually agoraphobic, which is uh, so annoying. Um, So I had to kind of work out how to get over that. And apparently the cure for agoraphobia is just to go outside. Did you know that? You just go out, (laughs) that's it. That's the whole, like, I was so, I found this so insulting. Because-
1: you're a genius. How did it take so long?
2: (laughs) Right? Exactly. Here I am, a genius, and I. Think, <laughs> so I was genuinely. I was like googling how to get over agrophobia, thinking I can sort this out because I'm a genius, and it said go outside. And I was thinking, I thought you'd say like have some orange juice. Oh, okay, fine. So I, I just. Um, so there was this fateful day where I decided to to, to cure my agrophobia by going out to get a sandwich. And that's all I wanted. I just wanted to get a sandwich. So um, I took a really long time to get ready. Um, and I, I went to the door. And I did this thing where I kept stepping towards it and then stepping away, which even at the time I was thinking this is like the, the agoraphobic salsa, like it's really unsexy dance. And I eventually went outside. And um, here's the thing about agoraphobia. It's not really a fear of going outside. It just means that when you go outside, you have a panic attack. And so you decide not to anymore. And that's the agoraphobia is when you bargain with it. So I went outside and I was just completely terrified of everything and the, the air was just like breathing melted chocolate. And I'm gonna level with you. I live in a very nice area of, of North London. So everyone I was encountering was essentially what we call a yummy mummy and she was going to Zumba. So I was sort of treating these Zumba mums as like, as if they were, you know, demon. It's actually quite similar to what I'm doing now with COVID-19, running into the road to get away from them. Um, mm-hmm. So I went and I, I got my sandwich and um, then someone approached me and I just, I just lost it. I threw the sandwich and ran home. And so I just sort of had this moment of revelation when I got home. And I just, I, because I remembered Mexico because I used to live there. I lived in Mexico for two years and I saw so many Day of the Dead celebrations and I just sat there and thought. Like they think about death and throw a party and I've just thrown a sandwich so I thought I've definitely like taken the wrong the wrong step here and this is when I started researching death festivals and um, I eventually made a a list of seven of them because um, we found my father-in-law on the eighth day after he died so I thought one for every day we didn't find him seemed like a a good tribute so um the short answer to your question is no i've not always been okay with death this did not start from a place of peace at all
0: wow that's uh that's an amazing amazing story it i think that's uh you know obviously there's a lot of what seems like you know hyper vigilance there like you know just being extra you know aware and cautious of the fears and look you're perfectly rational for being fearful of things because people die of odd situations all the time. People are getting hit by cars, you know, there, there's, uh, you know, accidents that happen, brain aneurysms. I was just thinking about this the other day. I said, you know, it's interesting that we negotiate through life thinking that things are gonna be okay and we're just sitting in our cars which are just huge metal boxes and then driving at extreme speeds and everybody's cool everybody's comfortable and like it's one little thing a tire falls off a truck all of a sudden it's running down the highway smashing into other cars and then we're done and like
2: you sound like the inside of my (laughs) brain during that time (laughs) right
0: right but what I'm trying to say is that you know we also have to kind of almost give up that fear or put it to the side just to even move around and function in life. You're rational, right. very rational for being fearful of all these things. But at the same time, uh we almost have to kind of put that to the side, which is crazy, but but yeah almost necessary. Like walking outside, right? Anything can happen. You're walking down the street, especially in today's day and age, right? Where you know you're passing by someone within two feet and then they're and they all of a sudden they cough and then you got the virus. There's a lot of things like that. But how do you get to your destination and how do you do what you want to do if you don't give up that and put it to the side a little bit?
2: Yeah, you need a little bit of faith just to get through the day. Essentially, you need like even I remember even my husband going down the stairs. I was just like, be careful, because, you know, he could fall down the stairs. And I thought, I think you need just because at the time I was thinking, well, faith is just stupid that's just not thinking Um, you know like I said I was able to reframe this as genius when I don't looking back I do not see a genius when I think about this stuff Um, I see a person who was not showering because she was staring at a screen Um, so yes you need a little bit of I you know what it's it's a little bit of faith to get through the day but it's also it's understanding that it's none of your business if someone dies and that it's actually it, it might upset you and it might be terrible but it is also um, ordinary um, and this was the hardest uh, lesson for me to learn when I went and visited all these different festivals for the dead but it was the message I kept getting that a very ordinary thing has happened when someone's died even if they died young in an extraordinary way it's actually normal it, it's sort of none of your business it's certainly not my job to sit there monitoring it as if it, what I was essentially doing I think was reacting to the lack of control yeah. that you feel when someone dies and especially when you find someone 8 days later you really haven't got control because you just obsess over the stupid things you were doing while they were lying there and of course nature's kind of taken over and really taken it out of your control because of you know a lot of people asked me um did you know he was dead right away when you found him after eight days, I was like, um, "Yes, we did," because mm. I think, and I almost—I said a really awful thing. I didn't mean to; it just came flying out of my mouth. I think I said something like, "If you left a steak on a bed for eight days, do you think you'd know it was it had gone bad?" Which is a mm. terrible thing to say. Like, a because I bel—I <laughs> compared my beloved father-in-law to meat. That's not great. Um, but also, we're all so removed from death we're not taught about it in schools we're taught about birth we're shown a video of a woman giving birth and trust me that is not less gross but yeah. you know we're all so removed from it that that was really a terrible thing for me to say and i do feel bad um but yeah it's it's but that that the way nature takes takes a person you love and warps them um one of the big effects for me was was this sense of of a lack of control so i think sort of using technology to stalk everybody was my way of trying to uh get that back and um yeah yeah,
0: yeah i think you're absolutely right i think the lack of control over those variables that can happen like for me um it just reminded me of how i um i had to come overcome some anxieties that i had regarding my dog dying because anything would freak me out like be like oh i can't open the door too much or, otherwise he'll run out the house and then get hit by a car or you know if, right. if i don't watch him too closely he'll chew on the wrong thing out in the backyard and then he'll die and then these fears would just build up and build up and build up and then i realized like man i'm not it's just overwhelming you know it's causing I mean, all that this. sounds
2: like a fear of it being your fault you know fear of the guilt which you know i i i think that's I mean that sounds like you were thinking about it too much but you know yeah. you need a measure of that but I I have a friend who so cannot come to terms with her her own cat dying that you know she's she, it, her cat dying of natural causes is absolutely unacceptable to her her cat dying at age 22 of completely ordinary natural things is just is just unacceptable and you know, that's that's I think where it gets where it's unhealthy, where you're rejecting death itself, because it's it's oh, gosh, it's so much easier yeah. when you just accept well, it.
0: I, I think there's definitely varying degrees, but ultimately they did the same thing. They do the same thing, whereas like it prevents you from really taking in the moment and enjoying life as it is, you know, just right. enjoying playing with my dog or, or just taking the day one at a time. Even even thinking too much about his natural death can cause a lot of discomfort in the in the meantime. Yeah, and uh,
2: I wonder if you were just a f- you you were kind of um, putting your fears of your dog dying through this filter of what if I do something stupid? Look at me, Sarah. Absolutely, you. I am <laughs> well, qualified.
0: Well, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely, because I want to be the best parent possible, and I would feel so bad if he got hit by a car and it and I could have prevented it and and that's just yeah. one of those things where you know you have to realize listen do the best you can do make sure you you cover your bases but you can't bubble wrap the world like you you got you got to just appreciate it and then it ruins it, it it infringes on the relationship you have with the person you love or with the animal that you love because you're always yeah. you can't en- you can't enjoy your normal kind of practices and stuff like that um but yeah i think right. um I think you hit it on the head and, and it's, it's a lot of it is, is we weren't taught. We weren't taught how to manage these feelings or deal with these emotions or when death happens, what feelings come up and in the school system and all this, So all, a lot of us, as we grow up, it's kind of like left our own devices to kind of navigate through this world without that information. Uh, let's, right. let's talk about um, the festivals yeah. that let's, let's start mm-hmm. with the first festival that you ended up going to.
2: Uh, the first festival I went to was, um, I went back to Mexico um, because I, well, this was, you know, it was about it was just under a year after um, after we found my father-in-law. And, um, you know, I knew Mexico, although I went to a completely different part of it, but, you know, I could speak the language, I could navigate it and stuff. And so, you know, this is also the one that most people have heard of, Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead. So at this point, you know, my book was still kind of an idea and i i thought i'll I'll go back and you know with this with this context of um of having lost somebody and it was um it was it was difficult actually um because I spent a lot of time i mean first of all once i when I got there i was still year on i was still utterly um disorganized and and scatterbrained because one of the things that I'd done to kind of what's the word? I sort of, um, one of the things I'd done to kind of bargain with these bad feelings was I'd stopped using my calendar um, because a week after Chris died, my calendar beeped at me and it said birthday dinner with Chris. And I thought, oh, calendar's, Calendars are just hurtful. Okay, so I'm just going to not use a calendar anymore. Um, So I was sort of, I got there and like as a research trip, even if you, when you read the book, you'll see the difference between this and the later festivals when I'm actually being a journalist and I'm actually being a person and arranging to meet people. And this, I was just sort of falling all over the place. So I, I got there and the first thing that I found myself grappling with was this idea that I didn't have a right to be there. Um, one of the other problems that we have with with grief in in the West, I guess, is this this kind of grief hierarchy. Who has a right to be upset? Mm. You know, um, you know, kids, spouses, girlfriends, brothers, sisters, they're allowed to be devastated. Um, you know, nephews, nieces, okay, grand, grandkids for a bit. Uh, daughter-in-law to be yeah she's nowhere on the grief hierarchy like no one expects me to be upset no one even asked how I was Um, so I kind of I got there and I found myself grappling with this idea that I didn't have a right to be here so it was it was a little bit difficult um, when I first got there and so what I what I eventually found myself doing after um, after I did a, a, a slightly disastrous cemetery tour when lots of things went wrong, um, which made for a very funny chapter at least. I I sort of found myself just before midnight standing in front of this altar um, where everyone had put down pictures of their of their deceased loved ones and you know you're supposed to put down offerings for them you know a drink. Um, some food and again so scatterbrained I was just I just walked up to thought, okay I'm going to try this and I was like hi Chris like, it was really awkward because I'm an English atheist talking to a photograph it was it was exactly as awkward as you might imagine and then I was like oh I didn't put down an offering oh hold on and sort of ran out and, and found a suite and um, I just had this little moment where I felt so stupid talking to a photo And I I think I just sort of said, I just wanted to say goodbye. Um, Bye. (laughs) And so it was sort of awkward. I I cried a little bit. But there was this moment right after it where I, I, as soon as I said bye, um, I heard the bells uh, strike midnight. And then I went and I I went to my phone and I had a text from my husband saying that he booked something for my birthday, um, keeping 25th free. And without even thinking about it, I just put it in my calendar. And then I sort of went, oh my goodness, what has happened? Like, how did, how did calendars come back all of a sudden? And I think, like, in hindsight, I think what happened there was I kind of, I, that was the moment I most authentically kind of joined in with this death festival, which is the point of them, I think, is that you carve out this time and space in the year to sort of continue your relationship with the dead in some way you give You give your love somewhere to go for a moment, and I think even just that tiny moment sort of opened up some space inside me where suddenly I felt okay to do calendars again and It was such a small but significant moment where I, and i remember thinking oh okay i have to I have to do this book now so it was um yeah, it was an interesting one the first one
1: that's so interesting, I like how you <laughs> I like how you said that you realize that form of continuing a bond is what the festival is about. And is it a way for you to um, love someone or put your love somewhere? I think yeah. that's real important. And, you know, like with studying these grief dreams and after my dad's loss and my own dreams, I realized that too. And like, I never got to say goodbye to him or that I loved him and that those were big blocks for me that I only realized after I had the dream where I was able to say that and there's something so important of being able to tell people that you love them and to be able to continue to reflect on who they are to you in like like right now like even though they're dead there's still a part of them that is within you and how you see yourself and I think you know like these these relationships that do continue like that you know that's why some people are spiritual, spiritual other people aren't but there is that that love that still continues even after the death and that's why i think so, these experiences are so interesting and i think why these dreams are so interesting that people can have that are comforting um well for yeah them.
2: there's a part of your brain that has that genuinely has no idea that your dad is dead and there's no way of explaining it to them you know, it doesn't speak English, that part of your brain. And so I imagine that's what a lot of grief dreams are about. And I think that's what, um, you know, you hear a lot of people talk about, they don't know where to put their love now. And it's because it doesn't, it doesn't just end just because they did. It's not actually tethered to them in that way. That would be very convenient. Um, So yeah, there's this part of your brain that genuinely has no clue that your dad is dead, particularly if you didn't get to say goodbye to him. And it was them I didn't see Chris dead ever. Mm. And so I spent years um double taking on the street thinking I'd seen him. And that did not happen to my husband, who did see him dead. Mm. Um, you know, there's just no doubt at all. So I guess that probably got through to that little part of his brain. But um, for those of us that don't have that, I think your brain bothers you for a long time going, where, where, where are they, though? Where are they, though? Can we see them? And you have to go, no, you know, well, that's our instinct is to go, no, shut up and just squish it down. <laughs> and of course, once you go to sleep, I'm not surprised you're having dreams because at that point, you know, that part of your brain goes to sleep and the rest of it can come out to play. I
1: suppose. But what's interesting, too, about these dreams is that, no, I acknowledge that he was dead. And so it's not that it was just like, oh, we're just continuing this bond and I don't understand that you're dead. No, like Mm -hmm. I know you're dead, Mm -hmm. but yet we are here having a moment. And I think that's the interesting part of it all. So it's not just like a memory or reliving a memory. There's something else going on. And it's beautiful. And there's a lot of mystery involved in that and a lot of love that is present within a lot of those images. So I think that's interesting. And I want to also mention too of you seeing Chris you know, cause I did research on continuing bonds and that's one of those things that is associated with trauma and trying to process the loss. And say, so, like you had a different experience than your husband and you know, maybe cause you said like, maybe cause your grief was disenfranchised and maybe more people cared about him um, than you because he was more closely associated with uh, Chris. But you know, like mm-hmm. these are all the things that, you know, when I hear someone speak, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Cause you know, like a lot of people, can have these experiences, especially when you can't talk about it with anyone or no one's acknowledging your grief, it gets suppressed and it gets manifested in weird ways.
2: Yeah, and especially given that, you know, like, we, because there is this grief hierarchy, um, what what I found myself worrying about and I think a lot of people worry about is um, that people will think you're stealing their thunder. Mm. You know, you're, you're, you're kind of milking it for... Um, For what? Well, this is what I was thinking. Why do I think this? And I think, well, let's see what, what happens to the bereaved? Bereaved people get treated well. Um, people are gentle with them. They don't let them make their own teeth. Uh, they give them slack in their workload. They give them time off. They're kind to them. We're not that kind to each other under normal circumstances. So I guess that's what I thought people would be, would, would, that's what I was worried people would think is that I was milking it, um, for for the perks of being a bereaved person, which if you think about it, what a horrible thing to think about people. What a horrible thing to assume people would imagine. But I guess I'm horrible. <laughs> but <laughs> it was I, or maybe what I did is I is I imagined that scenario as an excuse to suppress it and not do the work because that was that's another thing is working through grief. It is it is work. It's painful, and um, you know, opting to just not do it seems like a brilliant idea when you're a genius like me
0: <laughs> yeah you know it I think that we've we've changed, and this is the new normal that I guess Western cultures look at death like even at workplaces you know immediate family gets you know a week, maybe five days, and then maybe if you were close, maybe you get a couple of days off, but not for anybody else after that, and then you know like. For, I mean, I, I would imagine in your situation, you would have to add a statement after you've told someone that your father, uh, father-in-law to be had passed. You would have to, someone would maybe say like, oh, were you close? And you're like, yeah, we were close. Like that statement would need to be there. Otherwise, yeah. you know, in your own mind, it, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't register properly. But mm-hmm. I, it, it made me think about, uh, we talked to Kevin Toolis talking about the Irish wake and Keening and, and kind of the older rituals. There are some, you know, some funerals in Ireland where people who don't even know the person, they attend it. And that would seem odd where we are here and living in Canada or maybe even in Britain. Where yeah. it would be odd that someone would attend a funeral that they don't even know the person, but it's normal in a lot of communities in Ireland because that's just the historical way that they've done it. And it's yeah. just like that would that seems like something we should maybe get back to where that way it's not disenfranchised so much where someone who's a neighbor, who's mourning the loss of their neighbor, not related, doesn't live with them, and they, they're grieving. Like, why is that person not allowed or feels uncomfortable expressing their grief or attending a funeral? Even myself, I had two, my, my best friend, his friends, his childhood friends passed away, and I, I attended both funerals. But even then, there was a part of my brain that was like, oh, you know, uh, I don't want to put myself out there too much. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, I, I would look around and, and meet some of the friends, and I, I didn't want to overstep the grieving, which is odd. Now that I think Yeah, about what it. are
2: we worried is going to happen? You're overstepping, then what happens?
0: Yeah, you're it's- taking away my grief sh- shine? I don't know. Like
2: Exactly. It's, away- not <laughs> yeah.
0: it's not pie. There's not a limited amount of.
2: there really isn't no i know i i I don't i don't quite understand how we've got like this um i i sometimes think it might be an excuse like i said an excuse to bow out and you know bow out of an uncomfortable thing but i I honestly think it's just a lack of um i think it's a, a lack of experience and a lack of education around it we don't here's the thing because we've decided the way to deal with our fear of death is to never talk about it um, the only time we do talk about it is when we're forced to um, ie when someone has died which means that we aren't discussing this until our highest moment of trauma our highest moment of trauma is the point at which we confront this massive massive thing can you think of anything else in life that you would recommend someone ignore until you know it, it's, it's like don't learn to run until you've broken an ankle yeah you know it, it's a, it's an absurd thing that we've decided to do and it's just to avoid mm. essentially a twinge um, and so we, we, we're getting it so wrong and this was and you know this was one of the reasons that I wanted to go and visit um the 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 death festivals because I, I have to say from the outset I completely rejected the notion that we are more afraid of death than anybody else. I think that's ridiculous. I think we're all we're all human and we all have the exact same fear of death because it's um, instinctive. But I do think some of us are dealing with it better than others. Some have come up with ways to deal with it um, that unsurprisingly is better than shut up about it until there's literally a rotting corpse in front of you, as is what happened to my husband and I.
0: Yeah, it's like it's like that snake venom and you know, if you if you if you if you have it at low doses every day, you'll grow immune, but if you just take it in one shot, it's just it can kill you. But I think your analogy was really good because it's so true. It's like working out a muscle. You can't expect to run a 100-meter marathon or a race, you know, at your full speed without training. And so if you haven't trained the muscle uh, of death, uh, the training of getting used to it, Having those conversations around the dinner table, maybe someone, maybe your grandfather's birthday is coming up and maybe talking to your family say, oh, your grand, grand, grandpa would have been this. You know, all these little conversations are important. But you're right. We grew up in a con- culture where we've been taught that, you know, that's a negative thing. And you don't want to bring up negative things. You know, you don't want to jinx people. You don't want to, you know, it, it's odd. Right. <laughs> so, oh,
2: jinxing. Jinxing uh, of all things is so absurd. Yeah. <laughs> it does not. It does not call it to your door. No one really believes that either. It's just, I think it's just an excuse to not have it, not have a twinge.
1: I like Sean, what you're saying about, you know, we don't attend funerals of people we don't know, but other cultures they can. And I thought that was interesting because like one of my, my favorite comedy movies is wedding crashers. And there's a scene where they crash a funeral.
0: (laughs) And
1: it's so funny because I'm like, Oh, like, yeah, they're trying to pick up girls, but it's also funny because they're crashing someone they don't know. And I'm like, what would that be like now? Like, imagine it's a Saturday and your friends ask you what you're doing. And you're like, oh, uh, I'm just going to the funeral. And they're like, oh, sorry to here. Uh, oh, no, I didn't know them. I'm just going because I just want to like be more familiar with death. They'd think, you know, like <laughs> they probably just hang up the phone. But like, <laughs> but that's sort of what we're talking about. It's like, how can we get more accustomed to death and understand more of the death funeral without having to wait for someone to die. Like, can we go to a stranger's funeral? Would that be okay? You know, like I, no, no, (laughs) not, not if you're trying to pick up women, but but definitely not if you're trying to Yeah, if you're, if
2: you're Vince Vaughn and Owen Jones, whatever his name is, no. But no, I, here's why I don't think it is okay. Is because even though you might have decided that that's a good way to get to know death, the people of the funeral have not consented and are obviously not going to know, they're going to think, oh no, they've seen that film and they're trying to pick up girls. <laughs> that, that's the problem is that no, we're not all moving on at the same time. Um, so I think one of the things you can do that's better than crashing a funeral <laughs> is, um, is, I mean, things like this, like your podcast. You know, it's basically starting to have those conversations. And one of the things about this is, of course, that it's optional. Someone can tune in if they want to and not if they don't. You're not going to walk into a funeral and blast your podcast. you know. So it's just I think just I think we're starting even now, you know, with things like death cafes. Death cafes was genuinely one of the first things that made me realize I had to write this book Um, because I was reading about it. It was in the news. It was in several different newspapers that people were meeting up. Um, at these things called death cafes. They were having tea, coffee and cake and they were talking about death. And at first I thought, oh wow, that's good, we're getting better at talking about it. And then I thought, hold on, hold on. I live in a country where people talking about death makes the news. Like that makes headlines in this country. There's something wrong and you know, we're standing here patting ourselves on the back that we're having this conversation. Whereas there are other places like Mexico where every single year they think they're getting a visit from the dead people from, uh, you know, from, from their lives. And they're making them food and they're pouring them drinks and they're sitting up in the cemetery and they're talking about them so naturally. And I just thought, and here we are patting ourselves on the back for just having some cake and chatting about it. Don't get me wrong, I'm being flippant and I'm being rude. You know, we live particularly here in Britain we, this is not a very enchanted landscape. We don't have a lot of, you know, we're not very religious. And we don't believe that anyone's coming back to visit. You know, a lot of us don't believe that our loved ones are in heaven or anywhere. So we're dealing with something very different. We're dealing with total disappearance of our loved ones, which I think is harder to deal with than the idea that they've just gone away for a bit. So I don't I don't mean to be rude, but, you know, it kind of it did kind of strike me that, you know, even just the conversations that people were having, it, it, it was just so controversial here. And I thought, what if I told my Mexican friends that my Mexican friends, who, by the way, are very happy to say we are not afraid of death. Mm. Um, if I went to them and I said, yeah, well, people are actually meeting up and talking about death now. They'd be like, uh-huh. Finish the story. <laughs> I was like, that's the story. Yeah, I, I mean How
0: ridiculous. Yeah. You, well you you bring up good points, but also keep in mind that we've come a long way. Like if you just think about even mental health in general. Like I'm 35. I remember when I was younger it was uh there was still a lot of stigma around um either taking medication or even seeing a psychologist. Oh, yeah. that person must have problems. You know, that person yeah. like like no, it, maybe that person just wants to talk to someone else about the normal life traumas that take place and they don't have anybody or they they just want to go to a professional, but it's come a long way since then. Um, But, and, and I think this, let's call it lack of a better term, death positive movement. That's uh, a reflection of how things are changing where just because someone wants to talk about a death that they've had in their life doesn't mean there's a problem you know it's just something right. natural that person wants to talk about and we should have been having that conversations those conversations and we should have been providing a safe space for people but because of the way that everything kind of developed in i guess human discourse in the western worlds at least everybody wanted to be strong and stoic and not have that, those type of vulnerabilities or show those type of emotions or be able to free to talk about those type of traumas with uh, other people. Like even in a, even in a household, like, you know, I I don't know, like me personally, I haven't had a lot of deep conversations with my parents about death. Right. Yeah. I've probably had more than most people, but at the same time, not as much as we should be having and that's just cuz my parents are old school and that's just how i grew up but as as things progress and and things are moving so quickly but as they progress forward you know the conversations i'll have with my children are going to be very different and that's just yeah. one generation
2: well, I think you've hit on something. Is don't forget that our, I'm 35 too. So our parents are the baby boom generation, and there's so many of them were kind of at their mercy. Whatever they want to do, whatever they think is the is the correct cultural norm. That's what we're fighting against most of the time. So you know, bless them. They've got this. They they have this attitude, and they also have what something else. I think you hit on is is that this basic misunderstanding about grief. Is that it um is that it heals like a wound. You know, if you cut your finger you know it's going to be a little better tomorrow and then better the next day and better the next day and if that and if it gets worse in a week that's a problem something's gone wrong and you probably need to go to hospital you probably need antibiotics whatever and people react to grief in that same way if i'm fine for a few months and then i'm suddenly devastated that's when people start suggesting therapy because they think there's something wrong and Maybe therapy is a good idea, but it, it does not mean something's wrong. Actually, grief comes in waves. It does not heal like a wound. And even that basic misunderstanding, I think, is is another thing that, like you say, it ties into mental health, where people start to think they have a problem and, you know, they can't let go. And, you know, I remember even thinking that early on when my, my husband. He Spoke to someone, work asked him to, to, to have a couple of counseling sessions, and he said he actually started crying about his mother who had died several years earlier. And my first thought was, Oh my goodness, how is it if he's still so upset about that? There must be something really wrong with him. Wow, right. I, I have no idea, That's
0: yeah. So and right. I wouldn't even like imagine what the baby boomers went through with their parents, like you know, if you oh, think oh, that, that was a cakewalk,
2: <laughs> like I mean, they were essentially if you think about the war. Like, weren't they raised by, they were sent, do you know thing think is strange? We were raised by people who were raised by a generation with PTSD. Right. Like, can you imagine what weird behaviors we're all exhibiting that we aren't even really noticing because, because of that, you know, I, um, for my job, uh, writing for the Guardian, I interviewed, um, uh, World War II veterans on, on, on VE day and, it it was absolutely fascinating the range of ways these people were dealing with trauma that they had never, ever got help for. You know, one of them was almost crying the whole time he spoke. Another one made jokes. Another one pretended he wasn't afraid and never had been. Another one was obsessed with peace and making sure it never happened again. It was an absolute it was it was like across the whole spectrum you could imagine of ways to deal with trauma when you've never dealt with trauma. It was quite astonishing. Those people raised our parents. So I don't know what kind of weirdos we are now because of that. But then, you know, there must be a lot of things we're getting wrong because we were raised by people who were taught never to talk about this stuff.
1: Yeah, PTSD is just a recent term. They were really like victimized and they were basically blamed for their own trauma, saying that they were weak yeah. or, or whatnot. So like it's only a recent uh, aspect of our culture that we're actually taking that seriously. Um, yeah. And so they didn't have that. So like you would, the amount of suppression of the emotions that they were doing and the amount of drinking they're probably doing and drugs to try to suppress those feelings, you know, I can't imagine. It's just a different time than it is yeah. now. Where we're actually much more open to looking at things we don't normally look at. And I think this pandemic is also providing opportunity almost like a war in a sense of really acknowledging the death, but in a way that's not suppressing that, but actually acknowledging it. And so there's I know in the media there's so much attention to mental health and grief and all this stuff that before in other places and times in the world, they didn't have that. So Hopefully where we are now, our, the next generation can be even better than we are in the sense of acknowledging loss and being comfortable with it. And that's the exciting part is like our kids, you know, what are they going to be? In, and would death cafes even be a thing in the news anymore by then? You know,
2: I mean, hopefully not. I mean, I'm looking forward to, to when we get to be wrong about everything.
1: <laughs> but we're geniuses, right? <laughs> well, at the
2: moment we are. You know, like <laughs> you know, there's nothing characterizes baby boomers more than how wrong they are. That's not true. <laughs> I say. All right, e- easy. That's our that's the- our
0: target audience over here.
2: <laughs> 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 well, this is the thing. I we don't want to
0: alienate anybody. <laughs>
2: Yeah, no, this is the sort of stuff my mum says because my mum sort of talks about her own generation in this way, and she goes way too far. I'm like, mum, but you know, I mean, she also talks about the fact that, um, I mean, this this might be a little off topic, but here she was born um shortly before abortion became illegal, became legal in Britain, and she said something so terrible to me. She said, "My generation is a generation of unwanted children, and now we're a generation of unwanted adults." Well, like, mum. <laughs> <laughs> but you know she's my mom's super dark but it, it, you know this is this is the thing they 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 get to be wrong about everything right now and that is that is absolutely what is supposed to happen you should want your kids to have more and better ideas so I'm genuinely super excited for the next generation because they're already better than us have you noticed Oh, my gosh, Uh, they're so active with their, you know, protesting gun violence and stuff that you see them on the news. They're super articulate. I was like, wow, they're better than us. This is awesome. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, for sure. And and look, we live in a weird time and our parents didn't get a lot of what we have and their parents didn't get a lot of what they had. But you just think about the Internet alone, like how Internet has changed things. The access to information, the access to seeing other people, parts of the world. What we're doing right now, having this conversation, Mm. that 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 all stuff seems like it's accelerating. And I think we should be. I think that's that leads to more optimism because it's not like it might happen quicker than a gen. Look, we're talking about this now. We're thirty five. You know, all of us are actually around that age, and. This is a uh, change. You could in the lifetime change the way you think and believe rather than hold on to these value, values and beliefs for so long because you didn't know otherwise. Like growing up, it was just television with, you know, four stations and a newspaper. Like, you know, yeah. or in a library. Yeah. But who's going to go out to a library and then read a bunch of books? But, you know, that that's all we had. Now now you don't can... call
2: them the good old days. It sounds awful.
0: <laughs> well, it's always the good old days because for every generation, every generation is going to believe that, that, that times are good because there was probably a moment in your life that wasn't really good. But, you know, my good old days were when I was 15. That's great. But I can't go back Really. And- <laughs> Mine are now, but the, essentially
2: the... youth is good this is this is what you know my grandmother would one minute she'd be talking about like you don't know what life you don't know what hard is we were starving and then two minutes later she's like oh the good old days well i thought you were starving the truth is your <laughs> knees didn't hurt right you, youth, yeah. youth is good that's what's good it wasn't the day the day sounded awful um but you know that's just everyone everyone loves youth right yeah
1: well every i think every time there's different challenges Even though there's different benefits, and I think back then it'd be simpler. uh, Especially now, like technology is great, but it's also bad in sense of the bullying that's just ridiculous, and um, and the attention spans. So like there's it's very interesting when you look at different generations. There's always you know the opposite side where it's not perfect. You know there's other things that are going to manifest through the new technology and, and through new ways of thinking that will also have to be corrected as we go forward. And so. Yeah, it's just, you know, trying to be the best we can now with the tools we have. And I am really excited for your book because you went through a whole process. And what I love is that you're so honest about it. Just talking about even just the beginning of your journey. There's so much, there's so many gems there for people to understand about looking and sitting with your grief and understanding where you are in the midst of it. And then sometimes taking those risks, like stepping outside, it seems simple to some, right? But sometimes you just need to hear it or you just need that courage to be able to do that one thing. And then that leads to the next thing. And then all of a sudden you're on a plane with, you know, a different country. You know, like, but it's just all it took was you to step outside. And I think there's a a truth to that in the sense of sometimes it's not as hard as we think it is because we're looking at the end goal, right? Like, but if you just look at just the next step, it's amazing what that next step can provide and your book is hopefully that the answer for a lot of people to really sit with it and learn and laugh i'm guessing there's a lot of jokes in there because you're you're pretty funny so,
2: <laughs> so <laughs> i'm guessing you're curious as well
1: yeah you know yeah. Like
2: it was it was super confusing i think for my husband to come home that day um and i was sort of babbling for 20 minutes i sort of told him like yeah oh so okay look i know i have agoraphobia and and i failed to buy a sandwich also, I'm going to seven countries. <laughs> it made no sense to him that, that I said those two things in the same breath. Um, but, but, you know, I did. And so, yes, it did start with me sitting at my kitchen table wondering why I'd just thrown a sandwich. And then a couple of years later, I'm in Madagascar getting hit in the head by a corpse. And I thought it was funny.
1: That's so funny. So could you name the other six festivals you went to? Um, we don't have time to talk about them, but I'm just curious to see what the, the six were.
2: Sure. Yeah. So um, after Day of the Dead in Mexico was Gaijatra Jatra in, in Nepal, which is where um, every year there's a procession of people who have lost somebody that year. Um, so the idea is essentially you just look out and all you see is just an ocean of people who have gone through the same thing as you, which is uh, a really good way of, of, you know, realizing that you're not alone in your grief, because that's one of the biggest lies grief tells you. Um, after that, I went to, uh, Sicily for, uh, the Festa dei Morti, again, the, the Day of the Dead, which is the only death festival I was able to find in Europe. Um, and that is where uh, Sicilian children wake up on the Day of the Dead. And kind of like how Santa Claus has left you presents, it's the same deal, except instead of Santa Claus, it's your dead relative. And instead of just leaving you presents, they've hidden them around the house. Right. So Sicilian kids grow up thinking of their dead and associating them with a treasure hunt and a massive sugar rush as well because there's a lot of (laughs) sugar involved um i was just so jealous when you know thinking about my my youth where every time someone you mentioned someone who died you had to go silent and look at the floor i was like you got a treasure hunt oh my gosh so um after that so there's a chinese death festival called qingming which is uh where people will go it's called tomb sweeping day basically they will go and like sweep the you know, clean the tombs and then sort of go out and enjoy life. I actually didn't go to China for that. I went to Thailand because my father is married to a woman who is half Thai, half Chinese, and they celebrate this every year. So that was kind of nice. I got to go and uh, celebrate that one with family. Um, And then after Thailand was uh, Japan, um, which is uh, a festival called Obon, which is a little bit like Day of the Dead in that they believe that the, the spirits come back to visit, but they're there for a whole week. And, um, in Kyoto, they actually have this amazing goodbye ceremony for them. Kyoto is surrounded by mountains on three sides and they, they light these enormous bonfires for them because they think that that is how the, the spirits will sort of hitch a ride back to heaven. And, um, that was, uh, that was incredible and very emotional, actually. Um, and then I went to, uh, Madagascar, which is where Every, every five to seven years, families will get together and they will actually dig up their dead relatives from the family too. And then they'll wrap them in a fresh shroud and then lift them up on their shoulders and dance around with them and uh, that's when I got hit in the head by a corpse. (laughs) I just felt this knock in the back of my head and just turned around and they were like, oh, sorry, and I thought, of course I got hit in the head by a corpse. At some point, uh, that was always going to happen, I guess. Um, I didn't even check if I was kicked or headbutted. Um, And the final death festival also involved corpses, but this was even stronger because they weren't wrapped in a shroud this was in Tana Toraja, which is an area of Indonesia a very remote area and they will exhume their relatives from the tomb um, and they will dress them in new clothes and give them you know they'll give them new jewelry they take lots of pictures with them then they'll walk them around the village uh, they will FaceTime relatives who couldn't make it and essentially just, it's called mannene, which basically means hanging out with grandma. So I got to meet quite a lot of of dead people. And one of the most astonishing things about that is how quickly it becomes ordinary to just be hanging out with some dead people. And um, probably the most incredible moment of that for me, I, I was just sort of filming, everyone's filming, everyone's taking pictures, it's a big part of the festival. And I clicked, I, I sort of hit record on this video of this woman sitting next to her grandmother who'd been dead for four years and she just sort of looked at her and noticed something on her hair and she just sort of brushed the dust out of her hair. And it was this incredible moment of of love um, that I was not expecting to see. And I shared it on Twitter with some trepidation, slightly worried what people would say. And the outpouring of love was just unbelievable. People said, this is so beautiful. I wish I could see my grandmother again. And I was not expecting that in the West to get people calling um, a corpse and someone's obvious love for it, um, beautiful. So that was, that was the journey. And that finished in August, uh, just a few months before COVID-19 hit. So I got it all done just in the nick of time there.
1: Wow. Yeah, like when you're talking about all those festivals, there's so much stuff because of COVID, I'm guessing that's going to be changing in the spiritual routines or the rituals that people have. And that's going to be... Well, yeah. That's going to be a challenge for a lot of individuals to try to find a new way. Um, given I mean, this situation. yeah,
2: in in Madagascar, I, I actually and I was I got there. I was standing on the tomb because the tombs are sort of like one story building, basically. And I was standing on top and I was looking at this at this family. Um, and by family, I mean about five thousand people because of course everyone has 15 children and they all grow up and they all have 15 children, you know, they get married. And so very quickly it becomes, so that, that weirdly, I've sort of, I, the book's in the editing stages right now, it's in the copy edit. And so I'm going back over it. And for me, the weirdest stuff in it is not that I, 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 I thanked a corpse for being a gracious host and it's not that I got hit in the head by a dead person. I'm just looking at this going, what am I doing standing in this crowd? What?" <laughs> it's so weird to read about a time before social distancing. Like that's genuinely the weirdest thing about my book right now. Yeah. And <laughs> yes, in the future, of course, they're going to have to, I don't know what they're going to do. They're going to have to maybe delay it another couple of years. They're going to have to you can't really have a social distance version of a lot of these things, you know, that's a, you know, that's a procession through the street. It's a huge parade. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's painful to think about how these rituals will be affected because like I said, I think, I think that the purpose of them and the thing that, that we're getting wrong is that they allow these people a time and space in the year to carve out, to think about their dead and, Kind of come to terms a with their grief and b with their own fear of death, and I, I'm very sad to think that they might not do that. That said, there have been other things that have prevented them in the past. For example, um, the the terrible earthquake in Nepal. Um, of course, people did not come out for Guy that year because they were frightened of it happening again. They were frightened of a of an earthquake shattering, and you know people were grieving. And so, it, it's certainly not the first time that these 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 vessels will have been affected. But um, I guess the question is, when is it all going to be over?
1: Yeah, that's the mystery of it all, right? But Mm -hmm. um, we just don't know. And it's sitting with that. And it's like the same thing as with your idea that the people around us, you know, they may die at any moment. And it's just that unknown that you have to sit with and really cherish the moments when you do have them with them. And I've really learned yeah. that through doing the podcast and my own grief is to you know not leave things unsaid. And you know, like if you if you have love for someone, share it with them and tell them what you mean. You don't have to maybe do it every day.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm British. This is very hard. What you're saying, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm but you know, like, be able to people. sort of say because I always sort of think, even like my grandma or my mom, like because they're older, right? If they die, like would I be okay with? where it's at. And I say, yes. Okay. It's one of those times where I'm like, oh, maybe I should mention it and remind them that I love them. You know, like then I'll do that. But it's just like understanding that it's true. Our friends or people around us, our pets, they, we don't know when they're going to die. And this is something that we're going to have to learn to live with, but to sort of stay in a place where we're honoring the people we love and not afraid of them leaving is a delicate balance. And so for you, yes. I'm curious, have you developed any new rituals when it comes to honoring Chris?
2: I mean, at, at, at all of the death festivals, like the people I was there with and the guides, they always gave me an opportunity to somehow join in. And so that was, that was always nice. They always sort of said, you know, why don't you summon Chris now and talk to him? Why don't you write him, you know, basically join in? So there was that. In terms of actually um, continuing it at home, I don't know. Um, I guess we'll see when death season comes around. which <laughs> <It's> just sort of autumn and stuff. If I'm going to do it, um, I think so. I think one of the things I've definitely changed is that I I absolutely refuse to join in with the that sense that you can't easily mention a dead person's name. Mm. You know, I I now mention him and anyone else who's dead as easily as someone who's alive and it's caused a couple of moments of oddness but i just think that's one of the 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 tiny things that i'm hoping if i do it and if other people do it it'll just trickle down into the culture eventually and it'll be normal um but that's that's one of the and and just the idea that it's normal also i've kind of again awkward moments but i was speaking to someone as a member of my family who who she gets a little judgmental of people who don't eat well and, you know, things like that. And she was sort of on a rant about this guy who's not taking care of himself. And I just I said, you know, it's not immoral to die. Mm. And she almost fell over when I said that because mm. she just never thought of it before, I think. Um, so things like that, I'm kind of I'm, what I'm saying is I'm essentially being less polite because these these things that are just baked into the culture that this is how you're supposed to behave with it, I'm not doing that anymore. I don't think it's doing anyone any good and it's not doing me any good. So I think that's actually the main way in which I've changed my behavior is that after getting this message over and over again that what has happened is ordinary and that you, know, you can have a continuing relationship with someone even if you are uh, a super overly rational atheist like me. Um, that's kind of what I've brought home with it. And I'm kind of just, I don't know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to behave as if that's normal so that I'm thinking, you know, cause that's what you do when you've got kids, isn't it? You, I mean, I haven't, but you model behavior for them in the hopes that it will appear normal. And I guess that's all I'm trying to do is I'm just acting like death is okay until someone agrees with me
0: no I think that's that's a great that's great to hear and I think that's that's how thing that's how you're you know you're gonna get stronger in that category like even like I was just thinking about you know you said being polite and it's so true it's like we we want to be polite we don't want to say the wrong thing even around terms that I use like my grandmother passed on last year like no she died like dead right. just saying she died she the died like that's they a tough thing right and we do it all the time. And I think just little, little steps, little, you know, working out that muscle is going to build it in the future. It's, we're going to, we're going to get better at it. And I think that's all it is, you know, and I think you're doing the right thing. We're all doing the right thing in terms of thinking about those continuing bonds and, and yeah, maybe I'm curious about what new rituals we're going to come up with as society at large. And hopefully we will. Hopefully we will come up with maybe we can do like the Irish way where maybe my funeral, I'm going to open it up to everybody. I'm going to say I'm going to give instructions to the lawyer and the families and say, listen, this is an open invitation to everybody in the community. Everybody's invited. I don't want you to stop anybody. I don't care. Have it outside at a park that holds 500 people. I don't care. But but if that person's walking down the street and they want to come to this funeral, let them, you know, and then maybe that's what we need to do. Funeral crash allowed. Like allowed. I
1: like it. <laughs> <Allowed>. <laughs> I like it, Sean. And you said that both. now,
2: even just saying it is, is, you know, is a big thing because that's one of the things that's really difficult is to get people to, mm. to say it. And, you know, and I think we get to, there's, there's a chapter in my book where I talk about the kind of the intersection of death and privilege. One of the massive privileges that we have in the West is that we mostly die of old age. We die of three things. We die of cancer, heart disease, and stroke. And they're essentially aging diseases. So you can react to that by uh, becoming a transhumanist and trying to, you know, squash all of those things. Um, Or the other way is to just go, wow, I'm so lucky that I get to do that, that I get to die of old age, because my parts wear out, you know, Um, and, and, you know, something like a, a, as simple as just saying, I would like my funeral to be in a park to have loads of people. That's a privilege that we all have that most of us aren't taking. And, you know, it, if you, you think about the the way the things you and I don't have to worry about, like if you're not a trans person, for example, you don't have to worry about having an advanced directive to make sure that people honor that you know, that you are a man or a woman now and that they should not dress you in your old gender clothes, that they should not right. call you by your old name, things like that. Mm-hmm. So even conversations like that, like acknowledging that like um equality and privilege are massively, massively important when it comes to your death. It's almost like the way people don't vote. You know, people get really angry, like you're not using your privilege. And it's like, well, you're not using yours. You have the privilege you could any minute now you could be doing your advanced planning. And you don't even have to worry about things like not being presented properly gender wise. You don't even have to worry about being blamed for your own death, like um, like Eric Garner was, like Philando Castile was, you know, that they were. Why did they resist the cops? Why? You know, it's their own fault. They got shot by a cop. Oh, well, she got raped and murdered, but it was their own fault for wearing a short skirt. There are all these different ways that because we don't talk about our own death, we don't even realize how privileged we are in all these different ways. And so I kind of I'd love that conversation to be had as well, you know, so um, we're, we're, yeah, we're, we're kind of a lucky bunch, to be honest.
1: Until our, uh, the next generation says we're not.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. And I will yeah. listen. That's what's going to keep me young. I'm never going to complain about kids today.
1: <laughs> That's right. And so one of our last questions that we'd like to ask uh, on the podcast is, have you ever had a dream of Chris? or heard anyone that had had a dream of him?
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't, I've been thinking about this and I don't remember the details, but, but yes, I'm sure that both my husband and I did at some point. And it was always just that, that he was just around. Hmm. Um, but, but for me, it was, it was less, it was less sort of dreams while I was asleep. And it was much more double taking during the day, things Mm -hmm. like that. I think that's how my brain kind of, um, dealt with it. But, uh, but yes, I'm sure. I mean, he died in 2014. So that's when it would have happened. So I was trying to remember the details, but I can't quite um, recall them. But I guess I'm um, surely 100% of people you've spoken to must have said yes to that question.
1: Well, in the research I've done is uh, with spousal loss, 86 within the first year and a year and a bit. And pet loss, it was around like eight, 78%. So a fair amount of yeah. people will have these dreams. But it's like also understanding 10% of the population doesn't remember dreaming. So right, the, right. sort of the key. So uh, that's interesting. I'm glad you had it, but nothing monumental that stayed in your memory over time. And, you know, that is, that's the truth. And not everyone has those dreams that just stay with them, like some people on the podcast have. So, you know, yeah. cool. So <laughs> Most <strategies> could... <laughs> of these
2: have stayed with me have been horrifying. So I'm quite glad that nothing stayed with me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I think it, you probably process processed it, it would be different, too, if you had it while you're staying in the house versus if you had the dream at one of the death festivals on how you, um, if it was comforting or distressing at all um, to you at that point, because it would like represent some of what you're going through at that time. So, Hey, that's, yeah. that's uh, it's interesting. So the other question we ask is if you could have a dream tonight of Chris, what would that dream look like?
2: Um, we would just, be so my I would just be doing with him what was my favorite thing to do which is that we he would always invite us over for usually Sunday lunch and he would he would make these these elaborate lunches they were basically just like a roast dinner like a like a traditional English roast dinner except he would always do something heinous to the vegetables he didn't like <laughs> vegetables. So he'd just be like, I've turned the parsnips purple with Ribena. Why did you do that? Like, oh, God. He's got no respect for plants. You know. And then there would be, um, you know, there'd be a deadline and there'd be dessert and there'd be so much wine. My, my glass was never allowed to be empty. Um, and then there'd be chocolate. And he just always, um, and, you know, he always bought wine that he knew I liked. The minute he would open a bottle of white wine, I knew he got it for me because he didn't like white wine. Um, And, you know, actually after he died, we went into the basement looking for a key and we found an entire case of a wine that I liked and he didn't. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is what my dream would be. My dream, I would just have a dream, a detailed, long, detailed dream of roast lunch with Chris debating some ridiculous topic, which he'd be completely wrong about. (laughs) And <laughs> my husband and I would be arguing the other side. That's what I would want. I would want it to be long and detailed and delicious and, mm. and just warm. That's what I would want.
1: I love it. I love it so much. And it's nice to sort of hear that he cared so much about you and he had so those bottles of wine to really showcase how much love he did have and how much he cared that you were, you were taken care of. While you're there. It was
2: amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. That day, it was so you know, it was so traumatic. He was still dead upstairs, and I was on his computer trying to search for what he was doing, um, you know, trying to work out how he died and everything, and and all of this, and and then and then my husband just came up from the. This is in my book. He just came up from the cellar and went, "Look what I found," and it was an entire case of this wine, mm-hmm. and it just sort of cut through all the admin, and it was just this this love thing, you know, and it was just. Like ah. um, And yeah, it was, it was a very emotional moment, and also a very difficult time, so the wine did not last long.
1: I was going to ask you. Ask you. Did you drink it or did you like just save it? Because that's one of those things. That oh would, hell, we drank do. it.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I was. It was so. It was a problem I mean, with your so generation. You can't
0: hold on to things. <laughs> you know. <laughs> also, I was hoping. I was hoping you had a little story. With... Like every year, you open up a bottle and have a drink near the uh, the, the.
2: No, no. I mean, we're te- <laughs> we're terrible. terrible, massive drinkers in this country anyway. But I'm actually really bad at drinking. I'm actually a terrible lightweight. But no, I mean, I remember the next day sort of opening the fridge and seeing the wine and then having to stop myself having a glass of wine because it was seven in the morning, you know. And partly that other thing, I was just confused about what time it was. But no, that wine went so fast. It was mm-hmm. great. But no, that would have been a good idea. Damn, I, I wish I was that sentimental. I'm I still thinking have,
0: about, I'm I'm still thinking about Ribena and ter- parsnips. Uh, is that a it thing? It was
2: something like that. Is, is that no, a thing? No, it was horrible. <laughs> I don't know if it he, was. He right might be on onto to something, though.
0: He might be onto no. something. And for those who don't he know, ribena is like a condensed syrup that you put into water and turn it into juice.
2: It's awful. It <laughs> I did not it ribena, but it was ribena okay. colored and ribena flavored. Please don't put it like on. A glaze. Like, a, it like
0: a like It's probably deglazing the pan. I like that idea.
2: <laughs> i honestly. I mean, I've warned you. It was awful. <laughs> <laughs> he just has no respect for plants. Just um, <laughs> didn't like vegetables, so I was like, "How can I liven this up? How can I make this completely unlike a vegetable?" It was awful. I did not recommend it. Just so you know. <laughs>
1: That's sorry. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing. It's been a wonderful conversation. I feel that. You should have been in psychology rather than philosophy, (laughs) the way you uh, you you're talking. But, uh, you know, I'm really happy and hopefully that we can have you back on after your book is released so we can talk a little bit more of the things, because I had had so many questions, so many areas I wanted to talk about, but it is what it is, right? And so I'm just happy we got this time with you. And so could you just tell people where they can pre-order the book and find you and follow you?
2: sure yes um the book if you go on to um unbound dot com slash this party's dead you'll find it or just go on to my publisher called unbound so if you just go onto to unbound dot com and type in my name or this party's dead, you will see the trailer and you'll see my book you can pre order it there um please don't order the biscotti edition. This is an edition that comes. With um, traditional Sicilian bones of the dead biscotti baked by the author, like fifty-six people have ordered it already. Please stop ordering it. I can't bake this much. But <laughs> <laughs> I just people keep ordering it. Um, so yes, yeah, that's that's where you can find the book. Um, for me, you can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm it's just my handle is just at Erica Buist, or my book specific handle is. Um, uh, you can find me on Instagram at uh, This Party's Dead. So uh, come say hi, I'm, I'm around. I'm very approachable, I like to think.
0: Except when you're outside. <laughs> yeah. Then <laughs> don't approach me. Um, Erica, th- th- <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, everybody, can please check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. We added a donation button and there are perks to those who donate. And thank you for those who do take the time out to donate to us. If you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams group. You can share your dreams or hear more dreams of others. Uh, we are also on Twitter and Instagram at Roof Dreams. And as always, we like to end the show with love and gratitude from us to you.